I do this every year, uh, hopefully with these guys, because um, it was just a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And newer folks getting to know some of the folks that have been around for a while too. So it was a powerful time of community as well. Uh, Kevin, Linda, why don't you guys come on up? I want to, as they come on up, I want to introduce Kevin and Linda Swanson. We've, uh, they have been friends of New Community for, for years. Um, if that name sounds slightly familiar at all, uh, Swanson, that's because um, David Swanson, their son, was on staff with us at New Community for three years in, uh, I want to say years between 2007, 2010, and then uh, right around 2009, 2010. Thank you, CC. Hi, brother. Thank you. We planted New Community Bronzeville, and uh, they're doing wonderful work down there. Anyway, so that's how we got a chance to meet, and they have just been incredible supporters of our church via prayer, encouragement, other ways for years. Uh, Kevin is the executive pastor at Metro Covenant Church, which is in Inglewood, New Jersey. And Linda, his beloved, is uh, a world-traveled speaker, teacher, and mentor to a number of folks. And uh, their hearts for Jesus and hearts for the Church of Jesus Christ has been just a huge encouragement for me. And they were over here for this weekend leading the worship. I said, can you guys preach and bless our congregation? They said, be glad to do that. So they're here. So let's give them a huge round of applause, all right? All right, guys. All right. Ladies first, right? So thank you so much for having us. We did have a wonderful time yesterday with the couples. It takes a lot of effort and energy to pour into your marriage, but it pays off huge dividends. So we are very proud of the couples that came out yesterday and very thankful to be able to spend time getting to know them. So we're very thankful for that. And we're excited to be able to have the opportunity this morning to share God's word with you. This is actually one of my favorite passages that we're going to be talking about, so I hope you catch some of my joy and excitement and hope that comes from this passage of Scripture. This morning we're going to be talking about transformed relationships, not just marriages, but relationships. And the verses that we're going to look at apply to all relationships, from families to co-workers to friends and neighbors and our marriages and the parenting relationships we have with our children. When Kevin and I met, we were students at a college in San Francisco. It was the very first day of our freshman year and we were introduced and it wasn't very long after that that we started being friends and that soon grew into being best friends. And in November, I was turning 19 and so Kevin wanted to take me out to dinner, which you know, we had no money, but he splurged. And we went down to the Fisherman's Wharf and he took me to the Bratskeller, which is a German restaurant. And we could afford a bowl of soup and some crusty bread. It was the best soup and the best bread ever, you know? We just had such a lovely evening, but it was a dark lit 1970-ish restaurant. And so we had amber, um, candles on the table in front of us and at some point during the evening I happened to glance up and catch Kevin's eyes and my heart stopped and I was like oh my goodness I could fall in love with this guy and we're too young for that we'll break each other's hearts and the best friendship I've ever had 
I'll destroy. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to fall in love. Three months later, we were dating. And six months later, we were engaged. And a year later, we, were, we got married in college. So yes, we gave in to that consuming love. But love is kind of terrifying, right? And it has so many different emotions. It's a simple four-letter word that has complex meaning and incredible repercussions. We feel love. We give love. Love consumes us. It's a strong emotion. Sometimes it is an overwhelming emotions. We fall in love. And sometimes we allow ourselves to fall out of love. I love you is an action. It means so many things. I have passion for you. I have affection for you. I like you. I actively look for ways to act lovingly towards you. Couples make love. Homes are filled with love. We express love with actions of care and concern. We are affectionate, passionate, sexual. But love can also become passive and neglectful. Sometimes we are filled with love, like being drenched in the rain. It just pours over us. And other times, we have to choose to love. We don't feel like loving, but we obey God's command to love him, love our neighbors, and to love each other. What I'd like us to do for a few moments this morning before we actually get to the passage we're going to be looking at is I'd like us to just look at God's narrative of love in the scripture. I'm going to take a really quick tour uh, to see where this came from and how does it apply to us. And we're going to look at four uh, expressions of love, God's love towards us, our love towards him, our love towards neighbor, and then our love towards one another. Uh, I think most of us are familiar with the narrative from the Old Testament when the Israelites had been in captivity for over four centuries. And in the 15th chapter of Exodus, we find the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea, having just been rescued uh, by God in a, in a miraculous and undeniable way. And as they sat there on the shore and they watched the defeat of the Egyptian army and they knew they were finally liberated from this captivity, they did the only reasonable thing. They decided to have a beach party. And we're told in the 15th chapter of Exodus that there was singing and there was dancing on the shores of the Red Sea that day. Moses became a worship leader. Uh, he wrote this song, uh, and he and the people were singing it together. And just one verse from that song, Exodus 15, verse 13, we read this. The people are expressing this to God. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The reason I picked that particular verse out to look at the love of God is this is actually the first time in all of Scripture where the love of God is actually recorded for us. Now, don't get out your phones and start Googling that right now. You can check later on. If you find out I'm wrong, let me know. But I'm pretty sure that I'm right, that the love of God is never mentioned once in the book of Genesis. And through the first 15 chapters of Exodus, it's not mentioned either. But what happened that day is these people experienced something and they connected some dots and they said, oh my God, we have a God that loves us, that has expressed his love to us. We are the objects of this God's love. And, and this God's love, the nature of it 
is unfailing. How can that be? We've messed up already, and this God is expressing a love to us that is an unfailing love. Their eyes were open to a truth they never would have imagined, that God's actions on their behalf were demonstrating his affection, his love towards them. And that gave them confidence to look to the future, knowing that this same God had promised them a place of their own, and they were willing to follow this God. God's love first expressed for his people. We see that now, that theme throughout Scripture, literally to the end of the Bible. Now, the, uh, uh, John, in his epistle that he uh, writes in the New Testament that we call First John, he creates a bridge for us between this love of God expressed towards us and then the love that we can now express. And he simply says this in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So, so John gets this, that, that any expression of love that we have towards any direction is only a reflection of the love that God initiated for us. We don't create love. We can't manufacture love. We can only reflect the love that God has already expressed to us. And so then Jesus picks this up in the Gospels and, and, and shows us three very distinct objects of our love, this reflected love from God. And we read in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, of our love for God. We read this. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus says the first place we reflect that love that we've received from God is right back to him, and that we love him with everything in us. Jesus says that's the first and the greatest commandment. He continues in verse 39 of Matthew 22 regarding our love for neighbors. He says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So now we are reflecting this love out in a horizontal direction. But the object of love is our neighbors. Now, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus fleshes out what neighbor means because there was a religious leader who was extremely narrow in his view of neighbor, and he wanted Jesus to agree with him, to justify his beliefs. And Jesus says no. And he tells a story, and by the end of the story, I can't think of any other conclusion we can come to rather than Jesus is saying neighbor is anybody who needs a neighbor. There is no limit. It's not narrow. If there's somebody in our world that needs a neighbor, they're your neighbor, and you need to be a neighbor to that person and love that neighbor. So we re reflect God's love back to him. We reflect it out to anybody who needs a neighbor. And then finally, in John chapter 13, Jesus kind of brings us all to close with what he calls a new commandment a new commandment. Jesus says this, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, church, there's a great temptation to hear the words of Jesus and say, oh, he's just restating the second commandment to love neighbor, right? Love your neighbor, love one another. It's all the same. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have to ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus addressing here? Who is in the room when he says, love 
one another. Well, we find he's in the upper room with his disciples. This is where they celebrated the Last Supper. This is where Jesus washed their feet. This is where Judas was identified as the betrayer, and Judas got up and left the room. Jesus is left with the eleven. And he looks at the eleven, these guys that are going to start the church, the ones that are going to be responsible to carry on the work of Jesus, and he says to them, you guys need to love one another. And if you're at all familiar with the Gospels, you know why Jesus needed to say that. Because they weren't very good at it. They, they were always posturing for position, and they were, they were kicking each other to the curb to try to get closer to Jesus, and I'm going to be second in command. This was the kind of relationship they had. And Jesus says, no, that's got to stop. You guys need to love one another so that the world will know that you're my disciples. That's going to be the mark that you guys are going to carry with you, your love for one another. This becomes an internal love within the disciples. This becomes an internal love within the church. It's not an exclusive love, but Jesus is saying this love is so important among us for one another that if you don't get this right in here, you're never going to get it right out there. Love one another, a new commandment. This is what Jesus leaves for us. This is a relational commandment. He's talking to the church. He's talking to our relationships. And we need to take this seriously. So to summarize, love originates from God. His unconditional love is manifested towards us. He makes us stewards of that love, and we reflect it first and foremost back to him, secondly, towards anyone that needs a neighbor, and finally, we reflect it right here among our sisters and brothers in Christ. This new commandment to love, this relational love in the body is what we're going to explore this morning. We disciples are mandated to love one another as Christ loved us in our relationships with other disciples, in our Christian families, in the local church, in believing marriages. And Jesus says it's not optional. He puts it in the form of a commandment, a new commandment. We're going to put some flesh on that as we look into the scripture today. Our passage this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read it for us. I'm going to invite you to stand in respect for the word of God. And this is where we'll be for the next few moments. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, this is the word of God for us today. 
Let's pray. Father God, transform our ideas about love, transform our abilities to love, transform our motives to love, transform the outcome of our love. We are here to worship you. We are here to say you are our God and we want to follow you into the love that you have for us and the love that you want us to express towards each other. So teach us, we pray. Amen. You may sit down. So in this passage, Paul is describing healthy family dynamics and we would all say, sign me up. That's the kind of home I want. That's the kind of marriage I want. I want a marriage that reflects those attributes to each other. And in our romanticized view of marriage and family, we think that this is all going to just happen organically. We're going to get to live these really mushy, gushy feelings all the time and just feel so good about each other. And we don't think that our relationships have to be per purposeful or intentional or disciplined in any way. We think love shouldn't require effort. After all, it's love, right? We're just supposed to be in love with each other. But the problem with this is it doesn't happen that way. Though we want our love to just go with the flow, the flow tends to be downhill, like downstream, out to sea. And if we allow our feelings to take us where they want to go, it usually is in the tank. We need to work at love because our love has distractions and challenges and things that come against it, including our own self that is selfish and self-absorbed. We need to be careful with our love. It is fragile. It is a gift from God. And God does not invite us to live a life that is drifting along, a feel-good kind of life. That's not the kind of life he lived for us. He models for us an intentional, purposeful love. And then he invites us to follow his example. Love starts with God. And it is from the place of being loved by God and knowing who we are, God's chosen, holy, dearly loved people, from knowing that at the deepest part of us that we are then able to live the life that these verses describe. Without knowing our identity, we cannot live this kind of life. So holy, chosen, and dearly loved, this is who we really are. In these verses, Paul is describing the life that God has for us to live. And if we're not living our true identity, we're not going to be able to live it. If we do not know that we are God's chosen, then we're often trying to prove that we're choosable. That yes, you should pick me. And that means that we're living from our insecurities and our fears and our need to prove our worth rather than understanding that we are chosen. We have been chosen. That if we try so hard and we're living from these insecurities, then we're going to have unhealthy relationship dynamics. Knowing who we are is so important. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God declared that we are his chosen. This is who we really are. You and I have been chosen by God. 
So since Paul makes it very clear that we are God's chosen people, and since Paul is framing that identity in the context of our relationships, marriage and otherwise, our only appropriate response, according to Paul here, is that we should dress the part. And Paul chooses the analogy of clothing ourselves as we move forward in this passage. And, and he says that we should clothe ourselves, we should cover ourselves, we should put on, we should make certain things visible in our lives. And he offers to us five garments that we can put on. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know how you choose your clothing for the day, uh, but I do it in a very natural way. I just sort of let happen whatever happens. I walk into my closet and I, I choose the closest pair of blue jeans or the closest pair of shorts depending on the weather. And then I choose whatever is next on the rack of either a long sleeve t-shirt or a short sleeve t-shirt and I'm set for the day. I'm good to go. I don't have to give it much thought at all. Now when Pastor Peter invited us to come here to be with you at your church today and he asked us to preach, I thought, hmm, I got to get intentional here. I, I need to make a, a choice that is appropriate for what he has invited us to do today. So I actually went to a different part of my closet and I found something that wasn't blue jeans. 
And I, and I found a shirt with a collar on it, and I put it on today. And I thought, I'm going to dress intentionally based on what I know I'm going to be doing today. Paul is offering this same scenario for us. He's challenging us to be intentional with what we put on, what is visibly manifested in our lives. And he starts with compassion. Compassion towards one another. Compassion towards your spouse. Compassion towards your friend, your family member. Compassion always looks through the eyes of the other. Compassion asks the question, what is this person that I am called to love experiencing right now versus what do I want? What do I need? What do I want to get out of this encounter? Compassion moves around to the other and says, what are their needs right now? When Linda and I were um, young parents, uh, we actually had two under two for a season. Uh, that's rough, let me tell you, a lot of diapers. And um, Linda was a stay-at-home mom. I was working full-time outside the house. She was working way more than full-time inside the house. And I would come home at the end of every day pretty tired. I was doing some physical work. I was physically tired. And what I wanted to do was go in the house, take my shoes off, sit on the couch, put my feet up, turn the TV on, grab the paper, and just chill for a while. I I'd had plenty of stuff to keep me occupied all day long. But what I was experiencing was when I came in the house, I found that it was often a chaotic situation. And dinner was on the stove, and there were a couple kids, sometimes both of them grabbing on her pants legs and wanting this and that, and the laundry wasn't quite done and put away yet and different things like that. And it occurred to me that, that maybe I should have a different mindset when I came home. And I started thinking to myself, if I would just do a little self-talk on my way home every day and say, you know what, when you get home, it's going to be chaotic. It might be crazy. There might be all kinds of stuff going on. What can you do to actually help alleviate that situation? And, and so I started coming through the door with a completely different mindset, not looking through my own eyes, but looking through my wife's eyes, looking through Linda's eyes and saying, what, how can I help? How can I help calm things down? Can I take the kids out? Can we do this? And it made all the difference in the world for the rest of our evening if I came with that mindset. When I got put a little bit of compassion on, believe me, I didn't always get it right. When I put on a little bit of compassion, it changed everything in our household. Paul offers us the garment of compassion. The second one he offers us is kindness. Kindness. And I just want to focus on how we talk to each other. I see a lot of couples today. I meet with a lot of couples that are struggling in their relationships. And it's like kindness has gotten thrown away somewhere along the line. And the way they talk to each other is, is anything but kind. And then that tends to inflame things. And it makes a difficult situation even worse. We give ourselves a pass on kindness when we allow our emotions to take over. And I hear this far too often. I couldn't help what I said. I knew it was not the best, but I just couldn't stop, so I had to say this thing. And it's like, no, no. We have more control over ourselves than that. We control what comes out of our mouth. We can choose to speak with kindness, or if we can't, just keep our mouths shut. Does your friend, does your sibling, does your parent, your child, your spouse hear kindness when they listen to you? Paul invites us 
to intentionally put on kindness. The third garment he offers us is the garment of humility. Humility. There's this universal assumption that I think all of us have is that we're right. I mean, who gets out of bed in the morning and says, I'm going to go be wrong today. I'm going to go screw up as badly as I... No, we don't do that. We think we're right. When we say something, we think we're saying the right thing. When we observe something, we think we're correctly observing it and coming to the right conclusion. Linda and I were having a discussion slash argument slash borderline fight uh, some time ago, and she finally just stopped in the middle of this thing. She looked right at me and she said, Kevin, you just have to be right, don't you? And I thought to myself, well, no, I don't have to be right. Well, yes, I do. I am right. And it caught my attention. And I realized what I was doing was defending my position, even though it might not have been the right position. Humility says we don't know as much as we think we do. If the garment of humility was a t-shirt, on the front it would say lifelong learner. And on the back it would say rookie forever. And church, that is actually very freeing. It's very freeing to realize that we don't have to know it all. We don't have to be the expert at everything. We don't always have to be right. And if we'll just put on a bit of humility, we can often listen better to the other person and get a fuller perspective of the whole picture and realize that we weren't so right in the first place. Now, humility has an evil twin named pride, which we all struggle with. And if you find yourself struggling greatly with pride, I would challenge you to look at your own identity. Do, do you know who you are? If we go back to the beginning of this passage and found that we were chosen, holy, and dearly loved by God, do you remember that that is who you are? Or do you have an identity issue? Pride, see, has to prove itself. Pride has to be right all the time. Humility, on the other hand, has nothing to prove. And humility can relax into the situation and get the big picture. It's easier to be humble if we know who we are. and We don't have to prove anything. Paul offers us the garment of humility for somebody who truly does know who they are. The next item is the, the, the garment of gentleness. This is very much like kindness, but, but I would just sort of challenge you that in any relationship that you have, your marriage or otherwise, remember that you're dealing with another human being with all the flaws, fears, and weaknesses that you probably have yourself. You just have a little different manifestation of it. And, and when you treat the other person gently, when you choose to clothe yourself with gentleness, you make the other person, the one another, feel incredibly safe with you. And they know they're not going to be treated harshly or judged, but treated gently instead. And finally, Paul concludes this section by offering us the garment of patience. Patience. Now, as individuals who are relatively self-aware, which I believe you are, we all understand that we are people in process. We have not arrived yet. But sometimes we forget that our spouse or our friend or our sibling is also a person in process. And we hold them to higher standards than we hold ourselves. God is the one who's doing the good work in our lives, and God is incredibly patient with us. Incredibly patient. I would suggest that patience 
actually flows out of these other four characteristics that Paul has already presented to us there. As we get comfortable wearing the garment of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness in our relationships, patience kind of naturally flows out of that. Now, as a typical male of the species, I'm a fixer. I see a problem, I want to fix it, and I don't want to wait. I want it fixed now. But I've had to learn to slow down. I've had to learn to listen better and not force a solution to a problem to be more patient. And I would say that I've become a much better partner for Linda as I have learned to be a bit more patient. Paul adds patience to this wardrobe, and he makes it a daily choice that we get to make every time that we get dressed. So patience shows up in the next invitation to live well together, and that is bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The message says it this way. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and as completely as the Master forgave you. Bear with one another. Be even-tempered with each other. This is choosing to be patient and content with each other instead of giving ourselves permission to be impatient or critical or irritated by each other. Do we smile at each other's foibles or do we roll our eyes and sigh? Our weaknesses are just that, weaknesses. Weaknesses can irritate us. Or, if we let them, weaknesses can become things that endear us to each other. Oh, he always does that when he's stressed. Okay, I know he's stressed. I can go give him a back rub. Or I, I know that when, she, when she's too hungry and she needs some chocolate, she gets a bit grumpy. I know I should get her some hot chocolate, right? <laughs> so we, we can endear ourselves to each other, even in our weaknesses, as we grow in love for one another. Paul asks that we bear with one another, and he's challenging us when he does this to actually like one another. We know we're supposed to love, but we actually are invited here to like one another, to accept that we're not perfect. Bearing with each other sets us free from having to match this ideal person that somebody may be built in their mind, and we actually get to show up in our relationships as we really are, where we really are in life. I can drive Kevin nuts with my changeability. He is a planner. He likes to be prepared. We live in New Jersey, so we love to go into New York City. And we'll plan a day outing, and Kevin will put in all this work to make all of the logistics come together. And then I'll start improvising on him. You know how irritating that must be? But he chooses to bear with me. And instead of sighing or getting grumpy and pointing out all the work he's done for our day in New York City together, he smiles and he redoes his work. <laughs> I am spoiled, I admit it. This verse also says that we are to forgive each other. And not just with C-grade forgiveness. 
We are to forgive as Jesus forgave us, which is top-grade forgiveness. And here's the deal with forgiveness. We all need it. Sometimes we think just the other person needs it, but we all need forgiveness. We need to forgive as Jesus forgave us. And we need to remember that we have received forgiveness for our stuff as we're trying to forgive the other person for their stuff. It's really hard for us to give what we have not received, so we first need to make sure that we have received Christ's forgiveness for us. Once we have received God's forgiveness and accepted it, then we're able to give forgiveness to one another. And in forgiving each other, we actually become this miracle of a conduit of forgiveness. We have received God's forgiveness and we pass that forgiveness on to the next person. And it's just this beautiful conduit of God's forgiveness. First, we admit that I need forgiveness. I am so far from perfect. I receive that forgiveness and I live as a forgiven person. I remember who I really am, chosen, holy, and dearly loved, forgiven. And then I'm able to extend that same grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness to my spouse or to whoever else in my life has hurt me or wounded me. In all of our relationships, forgiving each other involves this incredible act of graciousness, of generosity, but we have been given so much, so why wouldn't we offer that? And it sets us free from having to prove that we were married to this wonderful person and forcing them to live up to our expectations. And instead, we forgive each other and we allow ourselves to be who we really are, people in process who are chosen, holy, and dearly loved and forgiven and becoming the people that God wants us to be. Forgiving isn't saying that poor behavior is okay or excusable or even forgettable. It isn't. We don't forget. Only God is able to forget. But forgetting, forgiving sets us free to live freedom with each other. We are no longer held captive by the sins that we have committed by each other. I'm free from having hurt Kevin because he's forgiven me, and he's free from living with that hurt because he has forgiven me. We find a way to release one another from our sins, our imperfections, our personality quirks, our weaknesses. But how do we do it? What is the measure that we have done it? We forgive as the Lord forgave us. Quickly. Completely. Nothing is unforgivable to the Lord. In verse 14 of our passage, Paul then adds uh, one final item to, the, to our wardrobe, and he tells us to put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul tells us there's this one virtue that floats to the surface above all the others that he has already mentioned, and that is love, the outer garment of love. And again, Paul tells us it's a choice, that it is something that we can and should Put on. What's interesting is in the passage, then Paul couples the word unity with the love. And he says that love results in perfect unity. And for those of us are, that are married, I want to point out the fact that unity is an interesting choice of words here because unity is the defining word that God uses to describe our marriages in both the Old and New Testament in the Scripture. Uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus 
uh, says this regarding the creation of, of, uh, of humanity. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Being united, experiencing the unity that God has designed for marriage is affirmed by Jesus here in the Gospels and then is later affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Love and unity in a marriage are indeed joined at the hip. If we are not experiencing unity in our marriage, which would mean we're experiencing some isolation, I think we need to look at the love component. How are we doing at loving our spouse? And I don't mean just with the words, I mean the words and the actions. Love is always expressed by both. And I think that what Paul has given us already in this passage is a list of actions that will indeed demonstrate our love to our spouse. As we look back and reflect on compassion and kindness and humility, we can ask ourselves, are those present in our relationship? Am I manifesting those things to my spouse? If not, then that may answer why you're not feeling the unity that God has designed. And we can go through the rest of the list and ask ourselves the same question. In church, married couples, each one of us, each partner in a marriage can be the one to take the first step and start putting on these virtues that Paul has given to us. We should never wait for the other. We shouldn't ever say, well, I'll start doing it once you start. No, let it start with you you take the first step and see what God does with it. The love we are to express to the one another is a reflection of the completely one-sided love that Christ expressed to us on the cross. He didn't wait for us to do something first. We shouldn't wait for the other either. So the next one is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Kevin and I have been married 43 years. We um, will celebrate 44 years on June 18th. So we are very blessed, but our home has not always been peaceful. So think about this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, rule in your homes, rule in your marriages, rule in your relationships, whatever they are, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Would peace be a good descriptive word for your relationships? Jesus came to give us his abundant life, and one of those attributes of that life is his peace. Peace to live well with each other. To not live as enemies, but as people who really truly love each other. We don't want to skirmish and fight all the time. Paul is saying that we don't have to. Because we were called, we were created, to live in peace with each other? Do we choose to live in peace? What, cho what does choosing to live with peace, I'm sorry, what does choosing the peace of Christ look like in our marriage? Well, for me, it means being very careful with how I talk to Kevin. Because at first I didn't realize that this tough guy who seemed to be able to take criticism from everybody else in the world had a harder time hearing it from me. He was tender towards me than he was towards the rest of the world. And so there was a heightened opportunity for me to hurt him with my words. And I needed to be aware that my words could hurt him. 
So choosing the peace of Christ in my life has meant me learning to think about how my words will impact Kevin and what I have to say. It means that we talk to each other in ways that promote harmony and not discord. We look for ways to not push each other's buttons. Kevin and I have a way of resolving a conflict when all of a sudden we're having a conversation and things get a little steamy or hot and we have this difficult topic that we need to talk about. We'll grab whatever is handy and we'll say, okay, this is this subject that we're struggling with right now. Um, I'm going to call it, our, we're fighting about our budget. This is our budget and we'll put it out there and then we'll come together and we'll sit on the couch shoulder to shoulder and we'll remind ourselves that budget is out there. We're on the same team and we want the same things. We look at this budget differently. We each have different histories, experiences, expectations, desires about whatever this subject is. But it is not going to get up off the table, off the floor, wherever we are, in the car, and come in between us. Because when it comes in between us, when I look at Kevin, I only see this thing. And he's on the other side of it. Which means he's now my competitor or my enemy and I have to convince him to come onto my side because I want to be the winner, right? I want to convince him because he's on the other side. If I win, that makes him the loser. Who wants to be married to a loser? <laughs> I mean, seriously. So we go through this exercise, which may seem really silly to you, but we've been doing it for years. And it really helps us remember that we're on the same team, that the peace of Christ is in our home and we want the same thing. We want to work through things together. And it's work because we do have different histories, experiences, expectations. But instead of getting my histories or experiences or desires or his, we get ours because we're on the same team. And be thankful. Thankfulness in any relationship goes such a long ways. When Kevin sees me carrying a load of laundry up from our basement and says, thank you, it somehow lightens the load. And when I look at him with a thankful heart versus a selfish heart or a self-centered heart or a self-absorbed heart, it completely transforms my attitude about him. Thankfulness goes a long ways. In, in verse 16, uh, Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And, and he gives some examples of teaching and singing and praising together. Um, I, I would suggest, church, that every Christian relationship, every Christian marriage, by definition, must have the message of Christ, the gospel, at the center, foundation, and also at the most visible place in that relationship. We, we, we can't just breeze over what Paul is saying here. We are Christians. There's, therefore, there should be aspects of a relationship that are distinctly Christian. Now, for Linda and me, um, letting the message of Christ dwell richly among us didn't happen naturally, and it didn't happen in the first year of our marriage. But over time, we have added practices to our relationship that are distinctly Christian, such as a praying together on a daily basis. You couples that were there yesterday, you probably got tired of us talking about that, but we can't promote that enough. A Christian marriage should be a marriage that has prayer as a significant component in that 
relationship, having conversations around God's Word. Linda, tell me what you have been reading lately. Share with me what you're learning about the Word of God. Let me share with you what God has shown me, encouraging each other in applying God's truth in our lives. These have become normal rhythms of life for us. As Linda said, it's taken work for us to get there, but we're reaping the benefits of it. And Paul tells us that as Christians, the message of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ should dwell richly among us. Married or single, we all need relationships that are intentionally and distinctly Christian. We easily default to letting our relationships be filled with very safe topics of conversation regarding the culture, entertainment, technology, fashion, you name it. It's easy to talk about that. It's safe. But how about the message of Christ? Where does the message of Christ land in your relationships? Paul normalizes relationships that are permeated with Jesus. Jesus should not be a rare component in a Christian relationship. Rather, Jesus should be both central and visible in any Christian relationship. Which leads us to, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever I do or say in any relationship, can I do it as unto him? Can I do it with his resources? Because I cannot do this on my own. I cannot have a successful marriage, successful relationships with my adult children, successful relationships with my elderly mom, whatever my relationships are, I cannot do it as well as God would want me to do it without his help. This is humbling myself to admit I can't live these verses on my own. This is doing all things as unto him, reminding myself in this difficult conversation, I am doing this difficult conversation as unto him. I'm not just doing it for my own self my own protection, my own way, my self-centeredness. I'm doing it. I'm having this conversation. I'm going through this discipline as unto him. This is using all that he has given us for our marriages, like Kevin said, his word, his spirit, prayer, truth, the fruit of the spirit, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, no matter what is happening. This is saying here in our home, we are going to do all things as unto the Lord. We're going to worship you in everything that we do. Here in these real life relationship issues that sometimes get pretty messy, we are going to stop and we're going to say we love you and we love one another and we're going to do all things as unto you. Paul ends the passage this morning in verse 17 by simply saying, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that is through Jesus Christ. Uh, every one of us has the ability to grow as thankful people. And thankfulness is such a powerful and redemptive force in any relationship that we really don't want to leave without it. How does that happen? How does that work out? If you have a believing friend, a believing family member, a believing spouse, then you should regularly thank God that they are chosen holy and dearly loved by him even when they irritate you. And I promise you, it will reframe that relationship. It will take your eyes off the irritation and it will put your eyes on who God has created them to be. If you are married together with your spouse, you should regularly be thanking God for the myriad of blessings that you enjoy in your relationship, in your family, in your world. 
And I would say that for any of us in any relationship, on a regular basis, we should be telling each other things that we are thankful for in the other person. Paul admonishes us to give thanks to God, and we need to find ways to manifest that. Practicing thanksgiving in relationships serves to recenter our focus on Christ and positions us to live well into the most significant relationships in our lives. So it's a fitting place for us to end this morning, focusing on the fact that we need to be thankful people for all that he has done for us. Now, the Apostle Paul has served us a rich feast in this passage. I don't know about you, but it's kind of overwhelming to me when I look at everything that he has presented to us here today. But it won't serve us well if we end up feeling overwhelmed, if we walk out the door feeling like, oh, how can I possibly apply everything that Paul has served us here? So for, in, a, in our closing time here together this morning, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you just a few moments of silence. And, and I'd like to ask you in these moments of silence uh, to just ask God to reveal to you what's my takeaway from this passage this morning? What are the one or two things, God, that you are asking me to apply in my relationships to one another, whether you're single or married? And then we're going to um, actually read the passage together after that. I'm going to invite you to read it with me. We're going to read it kind of slowly, but the idea is that God would answer that prayer that you've just prayed to him and that God would point out to you what does he want you to take out the door this morning based on what Paul has shared with us. So let's just spend a couple moments in silence and then I'll invite you to stand as we recite the passage together. God, I just thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for the richness of your word, the truth of your word, and your generosity with your word. God, I pray that you'll open the eyes of each of our hearts today as we receive this passage from you, and that you would show us what you would like us to be intentional about starting now, even before we walk out the door today. Pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we'll have the scripture on the screen. I'm just going to get us started. Uh, then I would like us to um, read this passage together. And like I said, we're not, we're not going to be in a hurry this time. Okay? Here we go. Therefore, as God's, God's chosen people, people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against him, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. And as a word of benediction, let's repeat those words. The last words of Paul as we pray this over each other. And whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great rest of the day, church.